The following is a President's Chapel given by Professor Joel Kim. For more information about this lecture or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Welcome to many of the new students who are here. Uh, We were glad to meet many of you last night and hear your stories the way the Lord has orchestrated your lives so that you may be here. Welcome back for many others who are away. During the summer, I hope you had a fruitful and productive time serving, often ministering in various churches. It's good to see many of you back as well. We begin this new school year with Thanksgiving on our minds and on our hearts. The Lord has been very kind to us, not only throughout the history of this institution, but this past year when we transitioned to new leadership, completed Westminster Village, a project made possible by the generosity of many friends who gave, who prayed, or perhaps even participated in building, uh, which made the buildings possible in the first place, and breathed a sigh of relief in receiving 10-year renewals from both of our accrediting agencies, the ATS and WASC. We are ever grateful for the Lord's provisions. As we think about where we are heading, and at this point in our institution's history, we get a chance to at least reflect and think about where we are and where we want to go. What do we think about and pray about as we seek to faithfully build on the foundation laid by the Lord and many of his faithful servants? This morning, I would like to share a thought with you about the place of Westminster Seminary, California in this ever-changing environment, a global environment. And in three sections, a moment in history, the mindset of the apostle, and our school's mission. Koreas have been in the news a lot lately. Earlier this year, an important summit took place in a country called Singapore. This unprecedented meeting between President Donald Trump and the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, has captured the imagination of many who hope for an end to one of the remaining remnants of the Cold War. Then only two weeks ago, we witnessed the tearful reunion of 89 families who were separated by and since the Korean War. This is a drop in the proverbial bucket since over 57,000 families applied for such a reunion and many others chose not to, including my own family who have family up north as well. Whether this summit and reunion will ever producing the desired end, the reunion of North and South Korea is anyone's guess at this point. Even earlier this year, both Koreas grabbed headlines when South Korea hosted its first Winter Olympic Games in a city called Pyeongchang. Some refer to these games as the Pyongyang Olympics, drawing our attention to the similarity of the two names, but also the amount of attention that North Korea has received at these Olympics. A Wall Street Journal editorial decried the uncritical attention received by the North Korean team its cheerleaders, and the presence of the sister of the North Korean leader, all diverting attention from the host, South Korea, the sufferings of the North Korean people, and the atrocities committed by the government of North Korea. Pyongyang, as the capital of this oppressive regime, now symbolizes dictatorship, human rights violations, and sufferings of citizens. But this was not always the case, as many of you know well. It might be difficult to imagine a time when the city and the name Pyongyang meant something entirely different. 
Only a century ago, and before Korea was divided into two, Pyongyang was considered the Jerusalem of the East, a model of success for missions and the center of growing Christianity in Korea. Pyongyang was home to a number of Christian schools, including the first Presbyterian seminary in the Far East and in Korea in particular. The Presbyterian Theological Seminary of Pyongyang began in 1901 with only two students meeting in the guest room of Reverend Samuel Moffat, who was in Korean called Mapo Samyeol, was his name, borrowing that name to reflect his English name, who went on to serve the school as president professor until 1935. By 1905, there were over 40 students engaged in a five-year curriculum, which included three months of classroom instruction and nine months of practical ministry engagement in the local churches. Seven students finished their studies in 1907, marking a new beginning for the Presbyterian churches and Korean Christianity. Moreover, Pyongyang is the location of what is now known as the Revival of 1907, often called the Pyongyang Revival. After the arrival of the first Western missionaries to Korea in 1885, the church in Korea grew rapidly in the following decades, numbering over 200,000 communicant members by 1910, the majority of them being Presbyterians. Moved by the teaching of the word and the open repentance of many other leaders of the church, including the pastor of the church, Gil Sun-ju, who incidentally was one of the first graduates of Pyongyang Presbyterian Theological Seminary, a national repentance movement was birthed that galvanized the young church to focus on spiritual matters in the midst of political and national crisis. 1905, Korea became a protectorate of Japan. One more event solidified the importance of Pyongyang in the history of Korean Christianity. When the first seven graduates finished their studies, the need for ecclesiastical support and engagement was very clear. Until this time, most missionaries and leaders in Korea were overseen by the denominations and mission boards of the Western missionaries. Recognizing the need for ecclesiastical oversight, the mission boards of the Southern Presbyterian Church US, the Northern Presbyterian Church US, the Canadian Presbyterian Church, and the Australian Presbyterian Church agreed to establish the first presbytery in Korea. Where did they meet for this first meeting? They met at Central Presbyterian Church of Pyongyang on September 17, 1907. 78 men were present, 38 missionaries and 40, 40 Korean elders, and Samuel A. Moffat was elected its first moderator. Among the first actions of the new presbytery was the examination and ordination of the seven men who graduated from their seminary. Soon after, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of Korea was established in 1912, meeting again in the city of Pyongyang at the Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Horace Underwood, who was a Northern Presbyterian missionary from the US, was elected its first moderator and Kir Sun-ju, the first graduate, became its vice moderator. The work of missions in Korea was not without cost. Recently visiting Yanghua Jin Foreign Missionary Cemetery in Seoul, where 145 foreign missionaries to Korea and their family members are now buried and remembered. 
Among them are the families of Henry Oppenzeller, the first Methodist missionary to Korea, who arrived in Korea on the same day as Horace Underwood, the first Presbyterian missionary of Korea, and William D. Reynolds. William Reynolds was a professor, professor at Pyongyang Theological Seminary coming from the Southern Presbyterian Church U.S., but he is most often remembered for his contribution toward producing the first complete translation of the Bible into the Korean language, which was published in 1910. This was not without great cost to him and his family. Soon after their arrival in 1892, the Reynolds gave birth to their first son, William Davis. Their joy was soon followed by grief as little William died the same year he was born now buried alongside many other children of missionaries who died while their parents were serving in Korea. The graves of these children set apart in a corner at Yanghua Jin International Mission Cemetery were sober reminders of the sacrifices that many missionaries and their families have made in their desire to bring the gospel to Korea. Perhaps given the history and importance of Presbyterian churches in Korea, you would not be surprised to learn that the largest denominations in Korea are Presbyterian. According to recent statistics, the largest denomination in Korea is the Korean Presbyterian Church with Hapdong Theological Line with nearly 2.8 million members and 12,000 churches. To take a personal aside, as a son of a Presbyterian minister who graduated from Chongshin Theological Seminary, the denominational seminary of the Hapdong denomination, I am who I am and where I am because of the churches were blessed by many who by God's providence were globally aware and globally engaged. This is where we are reminded of the mindset exhibited by Paul in his letter to the Romans, a letter one scholar referred to as a missionary diplomacy. In verse 20 and 21, the text that uh, Dr. Fesco read earlier simply says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. On the one hand, what is significant in this verse is not what he does, but why he is motivated to do it. He cites Isaiah 52.15 in Romans 15.21, where the important phrase, the pivot, is of him. His message is quite simple. The nations that did not hear will enter into the salvation of the ser uh, that the servant brings, now revealed to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is this announcement that drives his apostolic ambition and his mission. The gospel message of Jesus Christ, which is power unto salvation, is the motivation for Paul's ministry. God, who completes his work of redemption in Christ Jesus, now calls him as an apostle to the Gentiles, proclaiming the coming of this suffering servant of Isaiah. Paul, therefore, finds in Isaiah his own ministry announced beforehand. He is the very one entrusted with the message of Christ, sent to the limits of the world. Moreover, what I find challenging is Paul's expectation of the growth and expansion of the church, both in quality and geography between the ascension and the return of Christ. 
In Romans chapter 15, 7 through 13, verses that we did not read, Paul cites Psalm 1849, Psalm 117, 1, Deuteronomy 32, 43, and Isaiah 11:10. a verse from the Pentateuch, another from the prophets, and two from the book of Psalms to explain God's plan of redemption for all the nations. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant for all nations, and Paul encourages his readers and the churches to be involved in the proclamation of this very gospel to the nations. This is Paul's consciousness of the nations, a global consciousness, if you will. Far from being anti-missionary, as historian William Estep concluded, as many others like him have, John Calvin's concerns for the global church and his prayerful desire for global missions is quite well documented. We can remember Geneva as what Stanford Reed calls a missionary center, or the 200 preachers sent out by the Geneva church between 1555 and 1570 when records were kept. Or perhaps we can discuss the sermons of John Calvin that draw our attention to the Great Commission. But perhaps nothing is more telling than this prayer of John Calvin recited during his, uh, the worship in Geneva when they say, we pray you now, O gracious, most gracious God and merciful Father, for all peoples everywhere, as it is your will to be acknowledged as the Savior of the whole world through the redemption wrought by your Son, Jesus Christ, Grant that those who are still estranged from the knowledge of him, being in the darkness and captivity of error and ignorance, may be brought by the illumination of your Holy Spirit and the preaching of your gospel to the right way of salvation, which is to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Grant that those whom you have already visited with your grace and enlightened with the knowledge of your word may grow in goodness day by day, enriched by your spiritual blessings, so that all together we may worship you with one heart and one voice and may give honor and reverence to your Christ, our master, king and lawgiver. Amen. This is our heritage. This indeed is our inheritance. This is where we are mindful of our times and our institution's mission. This is indeed a changing world. The Pew Research Center's report for global Christianity, a report on the size and distribution of the world's Christian population, published in 2011, analyzes the size and distribution of the world's Christian population. In its summary, the report provides an overview of the stunning change that has taken place over the last century from 1910 to 2010. As it summarizes, a century ago, the global north, commonly defined as North America, Europe, Australia, Japan, and New Zealand, contained more than four times as many Christians as the global south, the rest of the Christian world. Today, the Pew Forum study finds more than 1.3 billion Christians live in the global south, representing nearly 65% of all Christians compared with about 860 million uh, Christians in the global north, about 35%. Terms like global north, global south, western church, 
majority church, majority world, and others are pregnant with difficulties and limitations, we recognize. But one cannot help but pause and think about the changes in the world around us. When you include the growth of other religions like Islam and the changes in economic and political centers throughout the world, perhaps Philip Philip Jenkins is right when he says we are currently living through one of the transforming moments in the history of religion worldwide. China is one case in point. By the time Mao Zedong's death in 1976, many estimate that there were as many as six million Protestants in China. The growth of Christianity in China continued unabated that by 2000, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity reported around 89 million Christians in China. As you can imagine, estimating the number of Christians in China is very difficult, but whether we agree with Professor Yang of Purdue University of 58 million or the extreme uh, guessing of 130 million reported in The Economist, the numbers are eye-popping and all agree that the growth will continue throughout the nations. Perhaps Rodney Stark is right when he shockingly states, more people go to church on Sunday in China on any given Sunday than in the whole of Europe at the current moment. It's an amazing transformation. In the midst of this, we recognize our unchanging message. The world might be changing, but the message does not. I appreciate Dr. Michael Horton, I do. It might not seem like it at times, but I do. (laughs) Michael Horton's book, uh, from his book, The Gospel Commission says this, Christians are called to do many things and work diligently in many vocations, not only as church members, but as parents, children, neighbors, co-workers, and citizens and volunteers. However, everything that the church is called to do as a visible institution, not only in its ministry of preaching, but its public service of prayer, singing, sacraments, fellowship, government, and discipline, is to be a means of delivering the gospel to the whole of creation. Even those raised in the church must be evangelized every Lord's Day, inserted again and again into the dying and rising of our living head. The same message that created faith in the beginning sustains it throughout our pilgrimage. It is the gift that keeps on giving, and it is intended to be given away by us to others outside of our covenant community. What comes through clear that all of us resonate with here on the platform and below us here is the focus on the proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified being the central message and mission of our engagement. In an age when preaching has strayed further and further away from the word, our nation and the global church needs and would love to be fed Christ week in and week out. To exalt the name of Christ throughout the world has been the mission of Westminster Seminary California from its beginning, recognizing its unique location as an outpost, a gateway to both Asia and Latin America. The initial model was building a base to serve the West and reach the world. This was emphasized and codified in the school's bylaws. It's indicated in our bylaws when it says, quote, the seminary's location in Southern California an ethnically diverse region near Mexico and accessible to the Asian nations of the Pacific Rim, places before WSC the challenge and opportunity 
the challenge and opportunity to educate students to function in a society characterized by such diversity. Indeed, from the beginning, WSC was founded on the ideal of blessing, of being a blessing to the nations and being blessed by them. We see this here. Just last night, many of us heard and witnessed the gathering of the world here in a small town of Escondido, California. If we enlarge our conception of the body of Christ to include not just our local church, local presbytery, or even our denomination, we are made aware that the whole global church belongs to the body of Christ. We have the blessings and obligations of working together. For the moment, the churches in the West have more resources in finance and theology. These resources are not only meant to bless our local churches, but also meant for all the churches that call upon the name of Christ Jesus. For those with financial blessings, stewarding those resources for the global church may be one's particular contribution. For those with theological education, going to teach and being taught may be the way the Lord is using your gifts for the kingdom. For those with other unique gifts and vocations, serving the national leaders and partners with particular set of blessings may be in your future. And this is what we have tried to do. Global engagement in WSC has been active. As the only confessional Presbyterian Reformed Seminary on the West Coast of the US, we have the privilege and opportunity of educating and training the next generation of leaders. We have the world coming to us with an international body of students with six new international students joining us this year. We have graduates throughout the world not only returning to their home countries, but students who are leaving the comforts of home to serve the church in 30 countries around the world as we so far know. We recently received a letter from Antonio Coppola, a recent graduate who serves in Durban, South Africa. And these were his words when he said, this is just a word of thanks from a past student. There is not a, one day that goes by that I am not thankful for the education that I received from you at Westminster Seminary. You have provided me with a strong and deep foundation in the word of God, which I value with all my life. We're encouraged by that engagement of our graduates throughout the world, and our faculty members travel regularly, not only throughout this country, but throughout the world to upgrade and uplift the schools and churches. Moreover, the faculty's books have been translated into 13 languages that we are aware of, being used to teach and edify Christians around the globe. But friends, this partnership is not simply about what we can give, however. This is not a one-way street by any means. Many countries have well-developed the theological and ecclesiastical structure who looks to the churches in the states not for a handout, but for partnership in reaching others and beyond. Moreover, do not allow the paucity of financial resources to make us believe that these developing churches have nothing to offer to ours. The faithfulness of these global churches often serves as a rebuke to the individualistic and consumeristic impulses of American and Western Christianity. The anonymity of many of these national partners and leaders pulls us back from the temptation of acceptance and celebrity. The struggles with syncretism apparent in many of these countries 
point us to what we as a nation will face going forward as we see our own churches diving headfirst into syncretistic theology and practices. The sufferings of these churches do and will teach us how to suffer well in the Lord despite the opposition of families and governmental policies. We are at a moment where we have an opportunity to bless and to be blessed by the churches around the world. Friends, you and I are gathered here not because the three or four or five years here are ends to themselves. We exist for the churches and we want to serve the church well. May the Lord bless you and bless this institution not only in the upcoming year, but the years to come, but that, that we may remain faithful in training and nurturing and sending out men and women who love and serve the church both here and abroad, proclaim the gospel with clarity and faithfulness with backbones of steel, and exalt the name of Christ Jesus daily for his glory, for his name's sake. For this we pray, for this we study. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for new beginnings. We thank you for the opportunities that we have to engage deeply in theological and biblical conversations that nurture and challenge us daily. We thank you for the faculty gathered here who love you, who model for the students what it means to live for you as pastor scholars. We thank you for our staff members, O oh Lord, who consider this their mission field and daily labor for your glory and on behalf of the church and for the students. We thank you for the wonderful friends and partners and friends around this nation and around the globe who support us and pray for us daily. We're grateful for their continued encouragement of our labors. We thank you for these students and their wives, husbands, and their children who sacrifice much to be here because they believe strongly that what the world needs is the proclamation of Jesus Christ more than anything else. Bless them, O Lord. Strengthen them. Encourage them when they're weak, both physically and spiritually, that their eyes may be fixed upon you. We thank you most of all for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, O Lord, who gives us life and purpose in all that we do. Use us, O Lord, uh, for us to exalt his name faithfully wherever you place and station us for your glory and for your church. For we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Copyright 2018, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.